Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring the deeper mysteries of life, faith and meaning. My name is Dom Fay, and we have Sue Wilton and Peter Catt with us again. Thanks, Sue and Peter. You're welcome. It's good to be back after a few weeks. It's fantastic. And uh, we are very pleased to welcome back uh, one of the favourite guests we've had on the podcast so far. George Tripp joins us again. Thank you for returning, George. Clearly, it wasn't too bad an experience the first time around. I survived it, and here I am. It's a pleasure (laughs) to be here. Thank you. Now, for those who haven't heard the first conversation, George, you are a former priest and uh, current counsellor, spiritual director artist um among other things and last time you were with us we discussed loving yourself now Mm. um bit of a notice at the top uh, top of this podcast if you haven't heard that one yet it might be a good idea to click pause jump back and hear that one and uh pick it up here again because Mm. we're gonna cover we're gonna further explore some of the same areas um just as a very brief i've written a very brief recap of that conversation just so we get a bit of a, a pick-up point. Uh, we did spend a bit of time discussing the importance of loving yourself. And George, you mentioned that two uh, key areas with this, uh, listening to what's going on in your dreams, um, what you're, you're being told in your dreams is really harming your soul, what, what you're struggling with, what's mm. trying to speak at you. Mm. And also to be aware of the multifaceted nature of the human person, um, that we are many. There are many parts of mm. us. Today, we're going to delve a bit deeper into all of that um, as a bit of a starting point I suppose um, I think dreams are a good uh, a good space to launch because I think that is an area that interests that fascinates a lot of people that we hear so little about George and you do I mean you, you are with us again in Brisbane and you how many dreams you've had a number of dreams workshops that have popped up during your time here haven't you yeah I'm doing two while I'm here mm. yeah yes and they've been well subscribed and uh, Responses have been very, very uh, positive, energetic. Yeah. Why do you think there is such an interest in in this dream work, in rediscovering this? Well, I think first of all, Dom, is they happen. And uh, people, I think, become curious as to why they have these incredibly odd and bizarre and sometimes scary and sometimes beautiful stories in the night that they have not constructed. Mm. They are involuntary as a psychic product. They show up unbidden, and they seem at least uh, objects of curiosity, if not more. So I think that that's what causes people to turn to them. And it's also, I think, um, the dynamic of the dream is is a very blunt challenge to the idea that life is rational and that we are in control. Uh, those two illusions fall quickly to the floor in the face of the dream, which is comes unbidden, and it will tell you what it wants you to know if you are willing to decode it. So there is a growing fascination, and I also think that the what we call the space-time box of rationality is collapsing, and people are looking for meaning and purpose at a deeper level, and... Uh, as John Dorley says, it's in your lap on your dream journal. You mm. don't have to go anywhere else. It's yours, and it comes from deep within, that uh, deeper eternal self that we talk about. I, I should be completely honest and say, last time I had you on, I'd never noted down a dream. I'd never really thought of dreams as anything more than a little bit odd and occasionally people's most boring stories when they tell you about their dreams. That was really my understanding of dreams to that point in time. 
That's because I have parents who love to, at the breakfast table, sit around and go into depth on the dream they just had. Um, but in the months since then, George, um, getting to know you more, I have delved into it and seen how rich this mm. can be. Mm. Um, but you must still encounter some people who, when you talk about dreams, think it's a bit loopy or just don't understand it. What, what do you say to that, to them? Well, I'm as polite as I can be, which is sometimes <laughs> a bit of a struggle. And uh, all I can do is remind people that it does happen, and it does happen, they say, three to five times a night. That's the research. And uh, how can something that occupies that much time, if you will use that word, in our lives be utterly meaningless? And if people want to hold to that rational and reductionist point of view, all I can do is say, well, it's, it's not mine. Mm. My experience is that if people will write them down and just spend a week or two risking the possibility that there's meaning there, that they find their way uh, into it, and it becomes very rich. It's, uh, we could say, a short-term conversion project. Uh, <laughs> it works. It works. Uh, yeah, I suppose... Um the more I thought about it, I did realize that even if you were to approach it from a rational point of view, um, the the fact that most of my waking hours, I'm in control of my thoughts, where my mind goes, what mm. I think about certain things. Mm. And then for, uh, you know, eight hours a night, I lose control of those thoughts, but they're still going somewhere. What's sending them there? Why are they presenting in these forms in, mm. in that space? Even from a rational point of view, you could make quite a logical argument that something's going on there. Mm, um, something that, is. Yeah, that's not coming from, from nowhere. So, mm. um, look, to, to further this, I thought it might be helpful if we hear some stories. Some, um, um, maybe you can start, George, some <laughs> stories of dreams you've had that you're open to sharing. Well, I, I think the other night I shared one. I don't know that I, I've talked to you about this one, that uh, since I was last here and we discussed dreams, I had a massive nightmare, which was... I have to say pretty cool. <laughs> I don't get these very often, but this was really top of the line. I woke up yelling out loud. It was great. <laughs> uh, I mean, I have a weird sense of what's valuable, so we have to be careful here. But I spent a lot of time with that and uh, was able to renew my own conviction that disturbing dreams are often of enormous value in offering us a a course correction in the way we're living. And for me, that's what happened with this nightmare. I was able to look squarely at the fact that I was hesitating to make two decisions that were in my best interest clearly. And I was just fudging like a professional, pushing back, oh, no, 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 I'll think about it tomorrow. And I've been doing this for over a year. I had the nightmare, and it was clear that that's what the challenge was, that the time had come to act or be diminished by my own lack of ability and courage to act. And so I made a deal with my dream guy, the one that was in the nightmare, that I would act before lunch on that day. And I made those two decisions, and I acted on them both. And it's gone very, very well. Mm. He uh, <laughs> he apologized in our conversation, this imaginal conversation I had, for frightening me, but he said, you really are a stubborn bastard. <laughs> <laughs> 
And he's quite right. So, <laughs> so that to me is just another example of the fact that um, these stories, even the terrifying ones, have potential for enormous meaning and, and taking us to deep places of our own truth mm. if we will have the courage to engage. I think we will explore a bit more on uh, the imagination, the active imagination you touched on uh, a bit shortly, what you do with these yeah. these characters who come in the dream, because it's not just noting them down, it's then, you know, I suppose, having dialogue with, mm-hmm. with them. Um, I, I might go to you, Peter. Do you remember when you started doing dream work? I don't think I asked you. We, we spoke about your experience with the inner village in the last podcast, but we didn't speak much on your your experience with dream work do you remember when you when that started becoming a thing in your life um i tripped across a book by a jesuit called lewis savory um i think 20 years ago um i'd been looking at the intersection between jungian psychology and spirituality and particularly john's gospel and um i tripped across this book called Dreamwork by Lewis Savory that was like a handbook on how to unpack dreams or the process of unpacking dreams. So it wasn't a wasn't one of those sort of new agey um, dictionaries like here's a symbol, this is what it means. It was a process it was it it explored firstly the 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 role that dreams had played in the judeo-christian tradition as we as we see it in the bible and then um, lewis savory was advocating for us to rediscover dream work because of the utilitarian nature of our our society and that uh, dreams were one of the only ways in which we could escape the paradigm that was oppressing us and so here were these gifts that were coming to us and so he advocated for us to take it seriously and so at the time I was having some really vivid dreams about falling and um, I think about you know chapter four or five of his book is on what to do with a falling dream you know sort of <laughs> so which was a real gift and it was basically um, helping helping to re-enter the dream and um, resolving he, he said you know if you resolve if you resolve when you go to sleep at night that um, that that you will stay with the dream rather than waking up, um, it, it, that's likely what will happen. And so I had this dream of constantly falling and waking up scared and, you know, wondering what would happen if, thank God I woke up, otherwise I'd be dead sort of feeling. And I'm on the advice of uh, this dream work manual, I stayed with the dream and um, found that when I got to the bottom of the abyss I landed on this bed of feathers and so that my worst um, fear because uh, I'm, I'm scared of heights so for me falling is um, a really close metaphor to the wor- what is the worst thing I can imagine it's, it's suddenly finding myself on on the peak of a of a skyscraper i'm pretty good on mountains but i'm no good on tall buildings and and being asked to get from building a to building b because building a is on fire that sort of and here's a tightrope to walk sort of thing and I, i'm you know i'm convinced i would fall and so the dream played into my deepest fears and discovering the bed of feathers um 
challenged challenged um, for me the whole notion of fear, and I, I actually it it was it was that dream that taught me that fear is not something that need paralyze you, and so it was actually when I became as a result of that dream, it was actually when I became um, a lot more courageous about speaking out on social justice, mm. which scares me silly every time. You know, I, every time um, I put myself out there, because I'm an introvert, um, it's a frightening experience. But I've learned to say yes to that which, which scares me. And most of the time, it is like landing in a bed of feathers, because... Uh, what I fear, um, the, the consequences I fear usually don't happen, and um, even when they do, they're not as uh, fear fearful as the experience, as I fear they will be. And since then, I've never had a falling dream since. So it's a great way to, to <laughs> it's a bit like George. Okay, so the way to deal with your nightmares is to stay with them, go through them, and if you learn from them and act on them, um, then they don't come back. Hmm. And I suppose this is about, because there's, there's an element of transformation that takes place in that you, you engage with what was scaring you. And I know this is something you've spoken about, George. If you've got a character chasing you or hunting you down or whatever, if you stop and confront them, often they might even turn into an ally. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think... I mean, obviously, it's hard to make a, a broad statement, but is are, are nightmares often indicative of something we're running from, avoiding that's hurting us that we just won't deal with? Yeah, I think that's a simple way to say it. Yes, they they represent something that is somehow a challenge to our defended ego conscious point of view, the way things are shaped, and they represent the possibility of change, new life. And uh, most of us don't embrace change in a gleeful way, often dragged in kicking. Mm. Uh, so, yes, I think that nightmares are like that, that they represent something that needs to be addressed for the ongoing experience of increasing in our wholeness, our creativity, our capacity to be compassionate or to make contribution to the lives of others in significant ways. I think last time you were on, you one of you, um, George or Peter, used the uh, the phrase about the dream being the forgotten voice of God. Was it something along those lines? It's from the Jewish, the Jewish. That's one of the things Lewis Savory mentions early in his book is that in the Jewish tradition, there's a proverb that says that a dream, dream uh, unanalyzed, is like leaving a gift unwrapped. Mm. Yeah, a- and I do think there's a sense in which when you have a nightmare, then perhaps it's it's this it's it's almost the voice of god as you know one tradition might say yelling at you this is important listen up mm. and trying to grab your attention through uh, i guess a, a scary um, scenario so even though many might think that a nightmare is a bad thing that has been sent to scare or not sent but that you had to scare you to paralyze you actually the nightmare is an ally. Would would you agree with that? Well, I, I think most of us are just raised in situations where when people, especially young children, have nightmares, we dismiss that and we grow up with that popular notion that, oh, that's just a nightmare, push it away. My experience is that uh, they have the potential to be very useful. Uh, I have uh, increasing respect for what I call the night visitations of any kind 
whether it's the nightmare or the the waking reflection that comes in the middle of the night as a consequence of a dream. Uh, that's that's incredibly rich time, but we've kind of just get concerned about oh I'm not getting back to sleep and I've got to go to work and all of that stuff and gets in the way of the creative process that is just churning around and during the night making its expression. So how do we I suppose start to listen to the dream? You wake up I don't know maybe sweating maybe yelling Mm -hmm. Um, you've just escaped a knife being thrown at you or you've you know nearly got hit by a train whatever the nightmare might be your heart's beating a million miles an hour you're sitting up in bed at three in the morning (laughs) what what do you do to transform that into a life-giving positive experience well i I think first of all i'd like to say we've gotten onto a, a, a kind of a trail here of negative experiences or frightening ones and Whatever we would do would be the same with a dream that was very positive, that Mm. had resolution, that gave us an uplift or excited us. Uh, I think the first thing we need to do uh, is make a decision to honor that by spending time with it. And for me, the first thing I would do is write it down. Uh, And sometimes I get up in the night and do that or make some notes so I can recapture it. Most of the time I can hold it till I get up in the morning and I start with the journal and a cup of tea and write the story out in a narrative form. And in the present tense, because the present tense verbs allows you to connect with the emotional field of the dream and kind of recapture that, and then begin to think about them and what they might mean. Uh, there are technical terms about all of that, but I think the, the major thing is to, to notice what you're thinking about. I often say to clients after we look at a dream and it's just sitting there uh, to pay attention to where the conversation goes. And sometimes it goes far over there or far over there, but suddenly we begin to see the relationship of them. So if you write a dream down, what does it cause you to think about? Who does it cause you to think about? What do you find yourself pondering or wondering about? Whether it's nightmare or whether it's a positive dream, I think that process is pretty much the same. What do you say to people who say they don't dream? Well, I remind them that the scientific information is conclusive that we do three to five times a night. I saw an article just a few weeks ago that indicated the REM sleep, which is the dreaming sleep, is actually longer than we had thought. And uh, I, I, I often say to people in my office when we talk, how many red cars did you pass on the way to this appointment? And, of course, they haven't got a clue. And why should they? Because it's not important. And my point is, until someone tells us the dream is important, we don't pay attention. Of course mm-hmm. we don't. We get on with the important things. So I, uh, I say that sometimes we can send a signal to the unconscious, an act of reverence, and say, I'd like the stories. Could you raise the volume level a bit? <laughs> Speak a little louder so I can catch on. And that's often a starting place. Mm. Uh, When we turn toward the unconscious, it often acts back to us with respect and gives us what we need. I I think it might be helpful to hear some more dream stories. I don't know if you have examples you're happy to share, George, from maybe your life, from work you've come across, Mm. or, you know, just generally over time how people have been confronted by something in a dream or, or seen something in a dream 
that has helped inform them about where maybe something they're dealing with or something they're confronted mm. with in life? Mm. Do it? Does it? Do any particular stories come to mind? Or well, my mind is running through the file as you <laughs> in the click, filing click, cabinet. Click, 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 yes, trying to get to them. Um, yes, in the presentation that I've done here and that I'll be doing again, uh, I present 13 stories of a variety of kinds. Um, one of them that I, I think um, is important is a, a dream that was brought by a man who uh, in the dream was on a jetty fishing with his 12-year-old son. And they were out on the end of the jetty, so they were furthest from land. And as they stood there fishing, a rather large brown bear came up out of the water onto the jetty and got between them and the land. And they were, of course, intelligent enough to be terrified. <laughs> but the bear indicated a kind of friendship and calmed them down and indicated they didn't need to be afraid, that all would be well. So what's a big brown bear doing coming up out of the Indian Ocean onto a jetty in Western Australia? We don't have a lot of those out our way. <laughs> <laughs> and I discovered, first of all, that he had spent time in North America, Northern Europe, and brown bears were a part of his own world and story. And uh, the, the issue for him was to figure out what the bear symbolized in him. We were dealing with the notion of symbolic interpretation. And of course, I sitting there, Mr. Smarty Pants, knew everything. And I immediately thought, well, it's his anger. How long is it going to take us to get to this? <laughs> so I patiently said, oh, well, what does a bear represent to you? And he looked at me, and in a flash he said, that's my illness. And it was an entirely different turn in the road, and I was working off of my own dream of a bear that was anger. What emerged was that he had been asked in another country, in North America, to take on a position that actually was custodial that the thing was not meant to succeed. He was just going in as a caretaker. They just forgot to tell him that. So he thought he was there to make a success out of something that didn't stand a chance, and he was killing himself, working as hard as he could in a dying situation. And he got sick, and so he had to leave the position. And he came to see that the illness of the bear saved his life. And that's mm. why it wasn't a terrifying experience. It was his friend. Yeah, wow. That's a fascinating experience, and it raises a whole question about when are negative experiences friendly and positive? When is an illness a friendly thing? You know, I was told as a young man that pleurisy is a way of reminding the body that if you don't shape up, you're in for pneumonia. It's the next step. If you're not careful, you've got to respond. So he was able, uh, because he had left that position, to begin to see that this was what saved him and gave him courage in the rebuilding of his life, which took him several years before he was able to return to full-time work. The 12-year-old son, fascinating image of the liminal age, that age of transition, sacred image. So he knew he was on sacred territory 
coming up out of the water, the coming out of the great unconscious. So this was a gift to him from his own unconscious mm. that what he had immediately thought was terrifying, I'm sick, actually was his friend, you're going to be okay. Yeah, well, waking him up from a bad situation. And getting him out of a bad situation, which was appalling. Yeah, wow. So, and of course, the other thing is that's a reminder, as uh, Peter was implying earlier, that you can't just say, well, look it up in the catalog, bear equals anger. I mean, in his case, it was bear equals illness. In my case, it was grizzly bear equals anger, but it was his dream. So we don't use catalogs in a, a framework that I work in, in a young framework. We just say, well, what does that mean to you? What associations do you have with that? Uh, if you dream of being at morning tea on your grandmother's veranda on a Sunday, what does grandmother mean to you? That could be the <laughs> person from another planet, or it could be a, a lovely, nourishing place to be. And we have to ask the dreamer in every instance, what's that mean for you? What, what associations do you have with that? A, mm. a bear or jumping off a cliff or falling in a hole or whatever it may be. I remember I had a dream earlier this year that I was going on a particularly scary mission and I took a friend of mine who's a bit of a mentor with me on that mission and for a long time I was thinking, I wonder why he popped up in that dream only to later think that this man as a friend to me symbolised stability and wisdom mm. and complete loyalty. I trusted his friendship more than just about any other. Mm. And so it was almost like my subconscious had chosen loyalty and kindness and wisdom to travel with me on this scary you know, mission of, of the dream. So, you know, I suppose that that's an important point to make, that when characters, people we know from our lives, circumstances we know in our lives, you know, locations whatever it might be, pop up in the dream, often they might mean something different to what our conscious state thinks that they mean. Mm. Would you agree with that? Mm. Is that yep. true? And I think that the story that you've shared is a good example of how the unconscious gives you images that give you consolation, that give you courage, that uh, encourage you in whatever this next step is going to be that you have to take. Mm. I refer to them often as dreams of promise. It doesn't mean that you've arrived. It means that you can move forward with confidence. In my work, uh, one of the things we watch for when someone new comes along is, is uh, dreams in the beginning of an analytical process that have to do with water. And how does the person respond to the water? Some people will have dreams in which they dive deep down into the water and they come to a place, a ledge, where they're able to climb up and suddenly they're in a cave where there's air and they can breathe and they find some old wise figure, female or male, sitting waiting to talk. That's a very wise and wonderful dream, but it says this person has the courage to go deep. Some people will see themselves swimming, and they'll just dive down and up and down. I had one person who was swimming on her back, and she didn't want to put her face in the water. And she was quite resistant. So we watch for how we relate to water and uh, try to get the person to explore what that dynamic is for them mm. as an initial part of the dreaming process. Well, this, I mean, it, it's so countercultural, all of this stuff. I mean, growing up in the, you know, the Christian tradition, there, I think I mentioned this last time, as everyone's experience would be in 
you know, 2018, there wasn't an ounce of dream talk <laughs> referenced in, in that upbringing. It was, you know, you were taught about one version of prayer, you were taught about one version of reading the Bible, but nobody ever spoke about dream work. Why do you think it got shut out, Sue? How did we lose such a gift? Yeah, I think partly it's a little bit scary. People might think of it as um, not reliable, you know, um, you're unconscious, how can you trust that? I think partly there's also in some traditions a um, sense of they seem to have lost some of the the, um, the positive side of dreaming and can see it as a time the the undefended consciences consciousness as, as George said before I think can people can be afraid of that and think well we we won't be in control so what could come out then and there's there's some traditions that can see that as a place where where evil or scary forces can have their say instead of actually um, seeing the undefended consciousness as, as a space of liberation really which is for me my experience I've been pretty good at um, in certain times of my life of of keeping um, you know there's some things that you don't want to think because otherwise you're going to have to act on them and you can (laughs) keep on defending and stopping those (laughs) thoughts Um, and the problem is that dreams when, when you're asleep and your guard's down then the dreams start to tell you about those things that you do need to act on that you do need to be aware of um, and one of my big repeated dreams, um, and again, it comes from our own experiences, you know, the, the things that will mean something to us. Um, I have baby dreams a lot, but they're, they're one of my repeated dreams from the past at those times of my life when I wasn't listening to some things that I needed to listen to um, is of, of the neglected baby, that I would have this dream that I'd had a baby, it was a newborn baby. But, and, and I was breastfeeding, and so it had to be me to feed this baby, but I'd put it down somewhere, and I couldn't work out where I'd put this baby down. And it's, it's been repeated at different times in life, and the, and the terrible you know, distress of looking and knowing that if I don't do something soon, that baby's going to die. Mm-hmm. And it's always been, for me, a time when I've been squashing the life out of myself by resisting you know, thinking and, and, and facing some things. Mm-hmm. Um, that needed uh, I needed nurturing that I needed to, to, to nurture myself you know and uh, when you think about uh, Christian tradition that can you know w- if we don't learn to pay attention to things like that um, then we can not be paying attention to the life that's seeking to out you know it, it was you know, life will out always and, and if it won't come out in your conscious because you're pressing it away so much then it will come out in your unconscious mm-hmm. um, and, and that was um, and that, that, that was been a, always a significant dream for me. The other one that I've had um, more recently, which is much more, well, which was uh, positive in terms of discernment, um, because I went out to Alice Springs for a retreat recently. When we got there, um, Celia, who is out there, said, said to us, you know, this is a place where people dream. It's just something about the landscape. If you don't normally dream vivid dreams, you just might start dreaming vivid dreams here. That seems to be what people encounter. And sure enough, but I was at a point, a cusp of having to make a decision here to, to leave the cathedral community and whether, whether or not I would do that and go and, and um, take up a call to another parish. And it was a huge decision because I love this place, didn't want to leave. Uh, and the first night, of course, off I go. I have a, I have a birthing dream. Uh, I'm giving birth to a lovely, healthy, fat baby. 
Um, that was first night, go, right, yeah, ignored it. Second night, gave birth again. <laughs> By Wednesday night, I, I woke up on Thursday morning absolutely shattered because I'd given birth three times in the <laughs> night. <laughs> and that was the point that I decided that something new had to be coming and I actually rang Peter because it was the only way that I stopped the dreams. And they did stop once I <laughs> made it official and made that phone call. You know, mm. But for me, that you know, the way I've interpreted it was that it, that it is something new and I did know what I needed to do, you know. So, you know, and, and I think it's also a good example of how we use from our own experience and we use the things that are very strong metaphors for us. I think something really important to touch on there as well is that that some people, when it comes to dream work, have found try to, similar to what you experienced with the, or what you mentioned about the book, Peter, where there's an exact definition, they try to use the rational, literal you know, framework that each dream has one exact meaning mm. and we must deliberate for an hour until we find out exactly what this dream was talking about and nail it down. Mm. But actually, it's it's more about what does it mean for you? What Where do you find meaning from it? Not that there... Not that there's an, it's a test with an answer at the end that, yes, that dream was about your loneliness. Congratulations, you figured it out. <laughs> but that actually it's about asking what it means um, for you and a whole different mindset, I suppose, is needed. Um, I do want to get into talking about the inner village uh, a bit more as well because I think that's such a... I know we've just done a, a good 30 minutes there on dreams, but I do, I do know the inner village is the next, I suppose, step with a lot of this stuff that often you get presented with images in the dream images of the subconscious who are crying out for your attention and you have to turn into them and listen to these parts of yourself. Um, before we do get to that though, George, I'm, I'm going to be a bit annoying to you here because I want to hear more stories of dreams. You said you had 13 of them. <laughs> <laughs> was it 13? 12? Uh, no, they're 13, 13 that I present in the, <laughs> uh, the thing I do. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't use up all your material here, otherwise you're yeah. <laughs> that's your gold. But I, I I'm just flitting around stories. in my mind and I'm just getting, yeah, going a bit uh, dizzy trying to choose things that I think are appropriate to the conversation. Mm. The, the reason, I, to clarify, I suppose the reason I'm asking is I think the more stories and examples you hear mm. of this, mm. the more you realize how mm. deeply rich it is and how much you, you know, you should start listening, I suppose. I had a, uh, this is not my dream, I had an experience with a dreamer that I, I think is important to the conversation. A young man came to me who was very busy. Uh, in hospitality, and I was seeing a relative on a regular basis, and he was referred because he had a dream. And he wondered if I could figure it out. Bang! <laughs> and the dream was simply that a snake was knocking on his bedroom window. And it happened over and over again, and every time the, the snake knocked, he knocked harder and louder, as it were, stronger. What did that mean, said he, and he had 45 minutes. <laughs> uh, so I suggested that we could talk about that and we could look forward and so forth, and he didn't want to do that. He wanted me to give him an answer then and there and go back to work. And I said, well, I can't do that. So I have no idea whether the snake ever broke the glass, but the repetitive dream is important because it will repeat until you pay attention to it. And I, uh, I had a man come to me who had been in Vietnam and did very dangerous work at uh, defusing uh, explosives on his belly, crawling into things. And he had a, a terrible dream that had him thrashing around. <clears throat> 
And that went on for quite a while. He married. Um, the dream stopped, which is quite interesting. And many years later, when his wife was di uh, diagnosed with a terminal illness, it began again. And he came to see me and we talked. But again, he didn't want to keep talking. He wanted just to know. And that isn't going to happen. So I don't know whether that dream continued and continued. But there's a deep, deep issue around terror and fear in that dream that, as far as I know, didn't get discussed. So repetitive dreams are really, really important, and they're relentless. They will come in one form or another until you get it. Mm. And they're meant to be helpful. I mean, that's the thing, again, with the adversary. They're there to help. And sometimes, like the guy that, that I had the nightmare with, uh, if you're a stubborn bastard, they'll keep at you until <laughs> you break down and go. I love that idea of dreams as the prophets in your own life. I yeah. Think that's, yeah. It's a lovely way to look at it. Yeah, they yeah. are. Mm. And something you said to me um, the other day, George, when we were, um, we were having dinner together, you made the comment that we sometimes view God as just this, you know, tender, completely, mm. um, you know, gentle, which obviously uh, are characteristics of God, but that God sometimes will use uh, strong images in a dream, will speak to you quite strongly if you're in a destructive place or something's harming mm. you. Mm. Um, do you think there needs to be a, a, you know, a reframing of that a little bit? Well, I think there needs to be some attention given to that. I, I think popular spirituality can get pretty chummy, and um, uh, for me it just isn't like that. Uh, I'm not going to try to quote a lot of things I get lost in my own <laughs> mind but in my tradition in the American church the first Sunday in Advent is stir up Sunday stir up we beseech thee the wills of that is that true here as well yeah, yes. yeah it's it's a great prayer to remind us that the, the the holy one will stir it up and relentlessly push us toward our wholeness uh, regardless of whether we want to cooperate or not, mm. uh, and will keep coming at us until we give in. Mm. And that's the surrender that has to happen, which for some people is a negative word. I think it's a really positive one. I had a guy who had a dream. Uh, he was a pretty much of a kind of a larrikin fellow and pretty satisfied with life, and he had a dream of himself in an old disused chook pen, out the back and it was so low such a small squat thing he had to actually be on his hands and knees crawling around in this thing and he got into it and then between him and the door he saw a hole and thought oh rat and out of the hole comes a great big snake and it was red agate. I mean, get that, a red agate snake. And his first impulse was to strangle it, which is the way we usually go about new life. <laughs> get out of here. And uh, he finally realized he had to surrender. And the position that he, he described was sitting on the ground with his back against the wall and his hands behind him leaning, you know, to keep himself upright which is an absolutely defenseless position. So he was utterly surrendering to this thing. 
that came and wrapped itself around his torso and his body, and he was naked. It went across his penis, he said, and up around, and got him right in the eye. And a voice said, I'm keeping an eye on you. And he said, I don't know who was speaking. And he woke up challenged, really deeply challenged to take his whole inner process far more seriously. Mm. That was for him. It wasn't a game, it's, it's not a jolly. He really had to confront the fact that this very deep sacred image was watching and expecting something back. Yeah, well, I remember when we had William Paul Young, the author of The Shack, on the podcast, he made the comment that God is not a God who will stand idly by while anything that is not of love's kind remains unchallenged. Mm. And the, the sentiment was that, that God is on our side, I suppose, is, is the first thing, but sometimes furiously so, and mm. sometimes with with power that comes into, I guess, wake up to this thing that's, that's harming you. Um, something I, I do think it's worth clarifying, because some friends I had discussions about dreams with after the last conversation said... Well, that's all well and good for the important dreams, but they only come along every few months, I think was the comment my friend made, mm. or, or you might get a few of them a lifetime. It's not every dream, though, is it? Not every dream's actually telling you something. Um, what would your response to that be? I don't think, first of all, the dreams are capricious at all. I think they have potential meaning, but I think also that there are times when we have dreams that don't... Uh, excite us or draw us we don't resonate easily with them we just we have them and there are ways in which i think we work the agenda of those dreams even without thinking about it that just to pay attention to a dream is to begin to engage its agenda some dreams will stand out and be more emotionally captivating and then uh, i think uh, kelsey said one place that most of us have about five big dreams in our lifetime, the really big ones. I remember one in my last semester of university in 1963 that I can still tell you about. It was, it was pretty cool. It was Wagnerian opera at the university. It was quite, quite exciting. So we have those big dreams. But I, I think the major thing is to have an act of reverence toward all of them. And some of them we just get a snippet. I mean, I've worked with people for an hour on what would be a photographic image, a still shot of a story. And that's all they could remember was this, this person was in my dream. Mm. And that was our opening statement to go further and further and further. So I think we have to be careful about saying, well, those are important or that person's important, therefore their dreams are better. Now, sometimes the so smallest, simplest thing can remind us where our feet are meant to be mm. and how we're meant to walk and we just have to listen carefully it i, I don't dismiss any of them yeah even i write down whatever i can of any of them even the the laughable trivial ones as well uh, maybe i don't have the right sense of humor but i don't have dreams like that <laughs> <laughs> that may be just i'm just a serious old fool i don't know uh, there's a good chance i think some of the the um what you could call the benign dreams are the dreams that help you realize that maybe your life is on track if, yep. you're, if you're dreaming about the everyday and it, it it and it just feels comfortable and it's okay that is actually a really good sign mm. i think experiences of deja vu have the same sort of power they they help us realize that our life is on track 
and it is okay for our life to be. You know, there are times, <coughs> and it, hopefully lots of times, when our life is on track. So you don't need you don't need every dream to be the life changing road of Damascus type experience. Mm. Um, I think those dreams are really important because they help us not waste our lives. I think that's one of the reasons why the dy- dynamism of the spirit uh, activates those sort of dreams in us. That you know, d- d- this precious gift of a life is not to be wasted. And so, if the dreams wake us up when we're sort of either on the wrong track or just taking it all for granted, or sort of just peeling the days off the calendar, really towards the grave. Um, that's really important, but I think the other, I think the benign dreams are also a gift, and that mm. they say to us, um, you, it could be that you're in the right place at the right time, and your dreams are just saying, it's, it's situation normal at the moment is really good, mm. so you don't need to, you don't need for every dream to be traumatic, mm. Mm. and so, you know, <clears throat> for years now, most of my dreams have been um, of that kind. And I wake up in the morning after I've had those dreams saying, oh, great, <laughs> that's a gift. Yeah. You know, I feel like I'm in the right place at the right time and my my subconscious is agreeing with that. And then I, that, which means that then I can be really attentive to the dreams that do have that sort of uh, inquiring edge or are asking me to do something new because that means something has to change. Mm. Something, even a small thing has to change or helps to resolve as because I have those sort of dreams that George was describing before too when when I'm putting things off because I want to see what emerges occasionally the dreams say well enough of that mm. <laughs> <laughs> time, time to make a decision time to do something I have an image that for me is that benign uh, contextual thing Uh, One of the most uh, satisfying things I've done across the course of my years is to be involved at conference and retreat centers. And I have been on staff or managed two in my working life. And I often dream about being at a conference center and either being in charge or I'm teaching or I'm leading something or we're doing something together. And the conference center image is for me that stable, grounded, benign place where there's great variety going on, which is kind of like my head or my heart. And uh, I take that as a great comfort. Yeah, I feel like I'm in the right place, settled. It's a nice image. So I look forward to those whenever they come. And that's my key that, hey, might be all right. Mm. Mm. So do you still learn from, listen to the dreams that aren't confronting or don't come at you with, a, I guess, a key character that you can have a conversation with? What, what do you do with them? I, I, first of all, I try to write every dream down that I can, and I, I recognize that that's a, a mad statement in this world, but I'm old, and I'm uh, in charge of my life in a way that I've never been before. I, I don't have to work. I don't have to rush out the door. I don't have to pay a mortgage. So it's luxury time in my village. (laughs) uh, I can get away with this. But I write them down because that's what I like to do. And then I reflect on them. And I usually try to make a comment about each one, even the ones that are not particularly dramatic, because I think they're useful. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's It's a conversation that I'm having with the divine spirit. 
the spirit speaks, and I respond by writing and reflecting and acting. Mm. And that's the dialogic nature for me of my spirituality. So you touched on the two men who didn't want to delve any further into their dreams. Mm. Um, they just wanted the answer and to get out. What is the way to approach this work then? If it's not, tell me what this means. I want to figure out what this means and get out. What What is the... What is the most fruitful way or mindset to approach this work with? I think, first of all, to relax and enjoy what you get. It's not a matter of having a full workbook. It's not a like a quiz where you've got to get all the right answers in the right spot. But just relax and enjoy the imagery and the stories, the richness of them, and begin to explore. And I don't think we ever crack, if you will, the code of a dream entirely. I can go back and look at dreams that I had a long time ago and see something I hadn't seen before. So we just kind of roll with it. And I don't want to be too light or silly about it, but just relax and enjoy the fact that the divine life has tailor-made these interesting stories for your consumption (laughs) and involvement, and then begin to see what you can glean from it Mm. and maybe the day of the dream it will be one thing two or three days later if you're thinking about it it may be something else so it's it's an exploration it's it's not an examination uh, that we have to pass in terms of I understand all the things that are going on Uh, to me it's it's been very helpful just to parallel that with parables and mythologies of the tradition and say who understands? And I, I really have never heard anybody explain the Eucharist to my satisfaction. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> That's right. It, it's just this great mystery. And we dance in it, and we enjoy it, and we are deeply enriched. I mean, we can be fed by something we don't understand. How good is that? So... I think that's an important image, George, in that we've, we've, we live in this culture that really wants to explain stuff yes, away. So yes. we've even tried to do that with the Eucharist. You know, transubstantiation is the Catholic, one of the Catholic ways of yeah. explaining what the Eucharist is, um, as is the Protestant sort of um, approach saying it is just a memorial meal mm. and so you mm. think of Jesus. Um, and dreams invite us into that different space where we have to say, I really don't know, this is mystery. Mm. Um, the divine is so close and so much integrated with us that we can actually have these experiences mm. at the altar and in our own dreams. I think it's a really beautiful parallel about, you know, the Eucharist for me, it just gets more and more mysterious. The more the more I encounter it, the deeper the encounter gets. But I'm actually, I can't tell you what the encounter is. I just know it is. And, and dreams have that same way of unlocking in this utilitarian reductionist culture, mm. which is always trying to reduce us. We have, it's so fantastic. There's this essential part of us that is screaming, no way, Jose. Yes, yes. Mm. I think it's a beautiful thing about dreams, but not just about dreams, the, the, the multi-layered nature and the different interpretations that George is saying, you know, you can find out later on that there's something else that that dream is going to give you. But I, I've found that's where a spiritual director can be really helpful, have someone to dialogue with and talk through this, the, the, the dreams and the things that are coming forward. But it's not 
just dreams. I have a similar kind of experience with spiritual directors, with gospel stories, and with, you know, uh, my spiritual director will often say to me, okay, is there a story of Jesus that, that you can think of with this, with this situation in your life? Does this intersect with any story? And so often there is, and she'll just leave me in silence, sometimes for five or ten minutes, and, and there's so often something will bubble up. Mm. And and for me, it often comes if I have enough silence with with visual with with a, a vision of some sort, mm. and I'm not mm. talking spooky vision. I'm just talking in as I reflect on that. There's an image that is clear in my mind, mm. and sometimes I don't understand what that image is, and I have to then. And that's where I need another person. That's where I need a spiritual director. When I start talking about this image that I'm seeing. Um, she will ask me some further questions and I go deeper and deeper and sometimes it's three weeks down the track or three months that the, another appointment down there that, that it will come up again and, and it gives me something else, that image. Um, and, and I think that's where I guess the church misses out if we have a um, – if, if we – Put it, turn the door, you know, close the door on dream work. We're also closing the door on on these other ways that we have that are um, invitations, doorways into the divine, doorways into um, n- new metaphors and um, like, like an icon that can can reveal something about God and about ourselves. I remember George. I made the comment to you only a few weeks ago that what the the number one thing that I felt I could take out of exploring and engaging this stuff was I felt I had finally given myself permission to be spiritual, (laughs) permission to Mm -hmm. engage the mystery, permission to not know, I suppose, in a sense, to surrender that way of being and thinking in the world, which is nailing down answers and, um, you know, Mm -hmm. figuring it all out, and permission to, to, I suppose, deal with something bigger than myself. Um, Which really, and it is is a stage where you have to, give yourself that permission i guess mm. to say yeah no it's you know when you sit down to do an active imagination and we might chat about that now briefly when you sit down to do an active imagination there's a lot of this that won't make sense to your logical rational mind mm. um in fact that, that we'll use that as a transition into active imagination because when these dream figures do come to you george um, when they do come to you you know someone who's trying to pursue you someone who's trying to hunt you down whatever it might be you lots of the dream work suggests the next step is to imagine you sit down you know the next day or a week later with pen and paper and imagine yourself having a conversation with this character and what they would say back to you Mm. um and this is the thing that i find with my friends i've spoken to about dream work that they find hardest to get their head around (laughs) what actually is active imagination how do you know what they're saying it's a it's a tricky one not really. <laughs> what do you mean? It's it's my ground, so we need to just, I need to declare that. This is what I did my academic work on, mm. comparing Jung's active imagination with Christian religious experience. Because when people would come and talk about their active imagination exercises or experiences, they often sounded like Christians talking about experiences of God. And I thought, hmm, so I spent several years putting that together and getting my PhD by doing it. So that's this is my ground. I love this ground. And I think the most important thing that, that I would suggest is that it gives us a way of relating to ourselves that allows us to set a boundary between ego consciousness and a particular aspect of who we are. Uh, if it could be any 
wise figure, it could be a child, uh, it could be a, a, an angry figure, whoever it is that comes. We have an op- a way of creating an objectification so that we recognize that while this is part of me, it is not all of me. And this allows us, I think, to engage the image and also to protect our behaviors from being overwhelmed by the image. So we create space through dialogue. Mm. I worked with a person years ago who had to make her way through the tortured ground of ending a relationship. It was very hard, given her background, because she was schooled in relationships are forever. And she had several characters come up across the course of time. And finally, uh, she had a most extraordinary dream of getting into a lift. And the lift started going up and it exploded out of the top of the building and landed in a garden over here. When she came out of the lift, there was this beautiful garden with a a pond and one lotus flower floating in the water. I mean, who scripted this? (laughs) (laughs) But it was safe. So we talked about it and decided that she might want to invite all these people that had been coming in the dream to afternoon tea in that garden to talk about whether or not she should leave her relationship. And there was a very traditional priest, there was herself as a young girl, there was herself as a a feminist, there was herself as an army sergeant, there was a cab driver who was a bit of a piece of work, and she got them all around the table and served them afternoon tea and let them have their say. And they each were able to speak about whether or not this relationship was life-giving and she should continue or whether she'd step aside. It took her a long time, but this became a safe way and a safe place to listen to her own complexity and her own ambivalence without being overwhelmed by it. It was extraordinarily creative for her. Hmm. Uh, I used a bit of this in my thesis. It's just a great story. Uh, I, I once was working with a group and we actually had the text. There were nine characters, so we got nine people to read it out loud like a play. And it was really amazing to see how quickly people got into the feeling side, the emotion of these various characters. We get this. We do get it. It's not difficult. We just have to give ourselves permission to dive in and try. Yeah. Another woman had some fascinating conversations with a person in her, her village called the Critic. And they had to strike a deal because she had a very analytical mind. But sometimes the negative side of that would come up and she would just become extremely judgmental. And she didn't want to always be that way. She didn't want to say, I can't be analytical. But she wanted to be careful as to what extent she did this. So she worked out a contract with this person in herself through active imagination. It's a form of meditation. It's a form of altered state of consciousness. I encourage people to sit down, and uh, Jung encouraged people to write the dialogue out like you would a play script. He said, she said. I have one, <laughs> one client who brings these in, and he takes a pen, and he puts it against his chest, and he goes, mm, mm, the other <laughs> person. <laughs> so I know who's talking when he does it, and that's how he keeps track. And 
I, I put initials down the side after I've done my imagination work, whoever I'm speaking to. And my village has some incredibly wild, weird, and wonderful characters who over time hang around. Sometimes they're more active than others. And um, they are there for me to engage and they support me and help me understand my reactions. The most important, or one of the most important for me, is a guy in my village named Back. I think, as I've told you, Dom, I was born with some problems in my lumbar region of my spine, and I live with chronic pain. And uh, he, Back, in my village, often is just laying on a pallet in the courtyard, uh, relaxing or whatever. And if my back pain is the cause of my refusing to face up to something, he'll give me a serve like you wouldn't believe. He doesn't mince words. Other times he'll say, I'm fine. Uh, you'll have to figure it out some other way. And that there are times when the pain is just the pain because that's the medical reality of this body. So this active imagination process is a way of creating uh, a, a space a rich, varied space to deal creatively with the energies of the psyche uh, that are very complex. Mm. And I suppose you could even say it's just a gimmick, a way of personalizing characteristics of the personality, but it's so rich. And what I see happening, uh, one man who's out of the Christian, conservative Christian tradition, who happens to be gay, and has never been supported in that. Started long conversations with a guy named Self-Loathing. And uh, his major conversations now are with Ideal, his ideal personal self. And that is the growing center of core of wisdom and compassion and self-love that is in his being and has been there all along, mm. but is now coming to the fore with whom he has weekly conversations, sitting down and just talking out what, what's ahead and what they've done and how they've gone and the like. And self-loathing is around. He just doesn't have much to say anymore. <laughs> so there's been the transformative process through this dialogic tool of meditation and encounter. Uh, I had a friend with active imagination who, after hearing you speak about it, wanted to give it a go. And she messaged me a, a bunch of questions. She'll probably be listening to this, but I'll keep her anonymous. <laughs> um, she messaged me a bunch of questions like, how long should it go for? Do mm. I just sit down and start writing? Can I use a computer? How many pages should it be? Where does it take place? All these sorts of questions. Um, and I, I, I love uh, an image that you use when you go into active imagination. I think this is in your, your thesis that you sent to me about the, the monk who screws up in your head. Oh, no, that's, that's mine. I didn't put it in the thesis. But, yes, I've got this monk who sits in the hut. I go into the village and I enter the hut of the wise old man who's the gatekeeper. And this monk sits in there. He never speaks. And if I'm agitated or distracted... Uh, the old man says, go sit with him for a while. So I sit down with him, and he leans over, and he opens my head, which is on a hinge, removes my brain, and closes it back up so I can relax. <laughs> suspend rational consciousness. That's what Jung says. You've got to be willing to suspend rational consciousness and enter the imaginal world on its terms. Yeah. And uh, a lot of 
people do this at first and say, oh, this, I, I don't think this matters or it's crap. I find often mm. they do brilliant work. Marie-Louise von Franz says it doesn't have to be long. That's Ten right. minutes mm. is probably too long because you fall into passive fantasy from active imagination. What's the difference between the two? The active imagination is a, is a dialogue between equals in which the other voice may speak fully as it wishes and you're not controlling anything. I mean, you could be told all sorts of things you didn't think you wanted to know. Mm. So passive fantasy is where you just get caught in that passive imaginal storyline and... Uh, it's not the same thing at all. Mm. So keeping it brief, uh, writing it down, recognizing that these voices can speak as they will, that it is a dialogue between equals, you're not in control, you're sharing the control of the space with the voice, and approach with respect and uh, reverence. Mm. That's, these are the things that I say. The Jesuits um, provided a similar way for, for people who, can't, who aren't ready or don't know how to access their inner village, um, the Jesuits uh, invite people to do the same thing with, say, the, with one of the parables of Jesus or a story of Jesus. Mm. Um, take any story, they say, any story at all, and imagine the scene. So it's a story that you will know really well. So it might be Jesus talking to the woman at the well, say. So you imagine the story, you set the scene, use a bit of imagination to try and create a sense of being in that place. Imagine the well, imagine the woman, um, and then place yourself in the story. Mm. So you're there. And once you've set the scene, let it go and see what happens. And sometimes people find themselves sitting either replacing the woman at the well or even in the place of Jesus, or find themselves as a third bystander. And they might be listening to the well-rehearsed banter between Jesus and the woman, only to find that one of them, quite surprisingly, turns and says, well, I've got something to say to you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so out of this, again, having created the space where the subconscious can even come into our conscious, like into our waking time and you can do the same thing we revisiting dreams it's it's just creating that space where you give it a chance mm. so if, if you can't do if you don't know enough about your inner village yet to have names for your bits and pieces you can take a well-known story like a gospel story mm. um, and recreate it and then let it go and, and the same thing will happen jesus will turn to you or the woman will turn to you and say have I got something to say to you, or what do you think? Yes, yes. No, that's, that's, it's a very, very good tool that the Jesuits have given us and is for many people a safer place to start yeah. because it's familiar and you, you've kind of got some backdrop in which to have your engagement, your encounter. I think sometimes we also don't trust the process enough and trust you know we particularly those of us that have grown up in the church and have all those stories there and you don't realize what they how they've been playing around in your mind and your spirit all your life and so my spiritual director instead of saying can you think of a story sometimes we'll just say okay there's this situation in your life go back put yourself there be in that in, in imagination mm. now where's jesus mm. and so often 
I don't consciously come at the story, but before I know it, I'm in one of the gospel stories because, and this is where trusting the spirit and trusting yourself um, and letting go, you can actually then, because then you can free up that story to teach you in a wholly fresh way that's very relevant, very current to your current, your present moment. Mm-hmm. And it, this is um, what we miss out. We don't allow that exploration. It can be quite an overwhelming thing in my experience having active imagination with a character from a dream. I got two pages in, as, as George knows, I was writing it down, and suddenly this character said something to me, this this came from my subconscious or my unconscious, and suddenly I was like, oh, that's the, that's the thing I'm struggling with. I didn't real. how did that just come out in this process? This is so bizarre to me. I had, a minute ago, I felt I had no knowledge of this, and now I know for sure, I feel so certain this is the truth. How did this just pop up out of nowhere? And I suppose it's because I'm listening I'm listening in a way I hadn't been listening before. And, um, I've been listening for the first time in many ways because yeah. we've been not listening, trying not to listen. Mm. Uh, I think one of the important things about the process, whether one uses a known story as an entry point or whether one creates one out of one's own imaginal process, is to trust that something positive can emerge, even if the imagery is totally out of the, out of the box. I worked with a guy raised in conservative background, religious background, another guy, he also gay, and he finally encountered Jesus in his village. Well... <laughs> he was wearing a loincloth, dragging this cross around, swearing like a trooper, <laughs> just the nastiest mouth on him. And <laughs> my, my client felt liberated by that because he felt he was an advocate for him and not someone punishing him. And it shifted his capacity to deal with the whole Jesus story. I wouldn't say that he then became a fervent believer again. I I think that's not happened. But we need to let the images have their own run and then evaluate, well, what is the meaning of this? And I've seen this in other instances too, when people who have been formed in that polite, nice Christian consciousness and have no touch, no ground with their own rage or anger or whatever that might be, frustration, disappointment, often these sacred figures will come in and just blow the lid by being contrary to what the expectation is. Mm -hmm. And we have to trust Mm -hmm. that there is meaning in that for us. (laughs) Yes, it makes me think of a a friend who was also raised in a very conservative Christian upbringing, and he... um, he leaned into me once and said, I'm having a lot of dreams about sex. And he was quite terrified because <laughs> sex was not, you don't talk, you don't think about sex, you don't talk about sex. Mm. And it was some, it was a part of him that was screaming, hello, I'm here. Yeah. Mm. Well, Jung says the dreams are primarily about compensation. Mm. And if the ego conscious position is too far in one direction, the dream automatically goes too far in the other mm. to try and strike the balance. And I think that's true. And the, a lot of this, you know, the inner village we're talking about, the multifaceted nature of a person mm. that I am not one, but I am, you know, I made up of my rage, of my excitement, of my passion, of mm. my loneliness, of all of these, they're all parts of me. 
Um, and you speak, George, about radical inclusivity. Mm. Um, uh, can you just touch a bit on what radical inclusivity uh, is? For me, it simply means that everybody's in. Uh, we can have images in the dream of um, people who are murderous, uh, who are Hitlerian, as I say, um, but they have to be included, and we have to find a place to hold them in the village. Uh, John O'Donohue says in some place that uh, not we cannot outpicture, out we cannot live out all the various facets of who we are. Not everybody in the village gets to go out to play, but they still have to be included in the story. Mm. Uh, I, I tell people that I secretly think I'm probably one of the best baritones for the opera in the 20th century. <laughs> I just never did it. <laughs> and uh, there's some things like that that I, I in my heart, I, I'm on stage. That's inside. He sings around the house. He's quite good, by the way. <laughs> uh, but that's internal. That's in the village. And there are other things like that. And I certainly wouldn't want to um, publicly have people know just how violent I can get over certain injustices and criminal acts on the part of systems, including the government of our country, uh, toward people who are disenfranchised and marginalized. Uh, I rage. I really rage. But he has to stay in the village, and I, I take his point of view and I try to find a way to express it that's accessible mm. rather than just slicing and killing and chopping. And how do you love him and not feel ashamed that's part of you? Well, I, I, why should I be ashamed of him? He's, you know, he's actually driven by a fierce, fierce sense of, of compassion and justice and anger and disappointment at what he sees in the world. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not ashamed of him. And that is something I want to touch on because before we recorded, we were talking about the ego and how often we are taught that the ego is this bad, negative, awful thing. Yeah, and yeah. You, you made the comment, and this is what it's like hanging out with George Tripp. He'll just have a cup of tea, say something <laughs> profound. You, you, said, um, you said the ego is not a villain in the piece. No, I think that's, that's important because I, I hear from people in, in the faith tradition that still is mine that... Uh, often the ego is the problem where I have to get the ego out of the way. Uh, I, th I mentioned to you that conversation I had with my dear sainted mother over the phone in which she said, if I could just get my ego out of the way, then Jesus could act. I said, well, mother, that's great. Then you can be psychotic. <laughs> and, uh, she didn't think that was very funny, actually. <laughs> but I, I suppose I, if there's radical inclusivity, the ego has to be included as well in the village. Well, I think the ego kind of is a is a key person in the sense that it's the ego's job to maintain relationship with the outside world. And so the ego has to vet who's going to go out <laughs> and who's not going to go out. Uh, and I really do mean that I think we have to have a strong ego to navigate this culture. We need a strong ego to be countercultural. Uh, there, there is no cultural system that I know of no political system, no economic system, no social system that aligns closely with the Christian story and the agenda of Jesus. So in every instance, if you you go deeply into the Jesus story, you're countercultural, and you've got to have the ego to stand there and not get washed across like a tsunami or hit by a wave of consumerism or the latest technological gadgetry. and. 
Hollis talks about all the spiritualities of distraction that are constantly at us. Mm. Uh, so we've got to be strong, and we've got to make clear decisions. That this is where my feet are placed. Mm. These are the things for which I stand. And I will try not to be rigid, and I will try to listen, but I will not easily give up my place. And the dream is, is where, for me, the authority comes from. Over a time, you become the authority in your own life. Mm. rather than anything external. You're describing a great deal of self-reflection there, though, too. You know, and so I think when we talk about um, the, the place of the ego, sometimes our projected persona is so identified with culture, it's actually not countercultural at all, and it's not true to who we are. It's our projected persona that is trying desperately to fit into the cultural f- norms around us. And I think that's, that's the one that we have to be aware of, and, and, and our self-reflective process, whether it's through, through dreams or imaginative dialogues, you know, we, we need to become more familiar with who is in our inner village um, and and not just slip into the same patterns of projecting um, and mirroring the culture around us. And the desire to belong is so strong that we will often acquiesce or collude or give in or surrender or get seduced Mm. by culture. And to me, it's an ongoing thing. Mm. just being able to critically reflect on why I watch the news I watch, mm-hmm. why I read the blogs I read, and knowing that we have to make those careful, conscious decisions and not just kind of get swept along. But I guess that the, the message of radical inclusivity is that you can't shame any part of yourself, including the public projection part. If you shame That's it, right. it will be a neglected child. Yeah, and, and it is an attempt to belong. It is an attempt to make go make peace with the world somehow what i call diluting yourself down to the point that people can tolerate you Uh, (laughs) i try not to give people my full strength (laughs) my kids will tell you why Uh, so i i try to find the language and the words and the temper and the emotion that people can access and not feel overwhelmed or intimidated or perhaps judged if that's how they want to respond Mm. So the ego has a big job to do. And at the same time, we, as we talked, that the core of a religious experience is for the ego to know something larger than itself exists and to align itself wisely in surrender to that. So once we learn that, we, we live in service to what? What am I in service to? be an interesting way to sign our letters at the end instead of saying best wishes or sincerely say in service to whatever we believe that we're in service to love compassion christ what would it be what are you in service to i would say that the thing that matters to me the most at the present time in my language would be joanna macy's uh, idea of the great turning that there are millions of us around the world that are hoping for a different paradigm to become dominant in the way we live. And that includes for me the agenda of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven or the reign of God or the commonwealth or whatever language we want to use. It's the compassion of the Buddhists of, of any group, including the whole mystical tradition of the Islamic people. That's what I hope I'm in service to intentionally and consciously in the smallest gestures Mm. that's what i try to hold myself to 
And I suppose radical inclusivity, if we speak about it on a global front that everybody's got to be included, we have to do the same with our own souls, don't we? Well, that's right. And it's a, it's a terrifying exercise. <laughs> it is a uh, And daily challenging. But I would rather live this way mm. than kind of flop along like something Flopper. floating on the ocean that doesn't have any ground or root or mm. sense of direction or purpose. Wow, well, that's part two of the George Tripp series. He's here again next year, so look forward to part three. (laughs) I think you're kind. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Um, Before we do let you go, George, you do just have a website that has launched. Um, What's that so our listeners can head there and have a look at your Uh, artwork? It's called tripart.com, my surname and art. And there you'll find uh, four galleries of artwork, including the Stations of the Soul and other posters for reflection and prints of artworks. Mm. And there are also some blogs that uh, I've put up, and I intend to continue to do that. And I'm happy to have people check in. And there is a way to to send me an email if you want to respond. Mm. So I'm happy to hear from people. This was the... This was one of the two decisions that came out of the nightmare, Dom. Was it? Yes, before lunch. <laughs> so I called and made an appointment with the person who designed the website and gave in. <laughs> That's mm. T-R-I-P-P-E-A-R-T dot com? That's dot com correct. Or dot au? Just dot com? No, just dot com. Brilliant. Thanks. Well, head there. Make sure you do. And check out some of George's amazing artwork while you're there. Thank you so much, George, for giving us your time again. It's been That's a gift. It's my pleasure, Dom. And uh, we'll be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.